Alright, so Acts chapter 6 is where we're at. And one thing we've been seeing as we've been going through the book of Acts is the as the success of the church grows, the persecution is growing. Things are getting more and more intense. This new, for lack of a better term, because we're not being they're not being called Christians yet, this new sect of Jews that are followers of Christ is starting to grow way too much, and the Sadducees are having a huge problem with it. They ended up throwing some of these guys in prison, but God let them out of prison. And there was just too much happening to where um, politically the nation was not ready to, um, or it was dangerous for the Sadducees to pursue them too hard. So they're being forced to kind of exist with these, uh, this new sect of Jews that are followers of Jesus. Uh, they've got to let them hang around their temple. And they didn't like it, but it was, they didn't really have much choice. But it's really about to ramp up now because uh, we're going to see in this chapter, we're going to be introduced to Stephen, who is going to be the first martyr in the New Testament church. And that's uh, when we see Stephen being stoned, that's the first time we see blood being shed uh, by the Christians, someone dying for their faith. And it definitely wasn't the last time. But I do believe uh, we are, things are really coming to a climax here as far as the fight between the Jews who have rejected Christ and the ones who have accepted him. So in verse one, it says, and in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And what was this daily ministration that it's talking about where widows are being neglected? Because remember, this is new Testament church, right? And even though, uh, not everything is completely changed yet. It's kind of in the process of changing. There is something that we see here that I think is a little foreign to us as American Christians. And we don't like to admit this, but you know, our Christianity is often influenced by our culture, isn't it? Yeah. And we hate to admit that, but it's just true. And, uh, I'm, and what I'm going to point out, I don't think is necessarily a flaw in our American Christianity, but there is a difference uh, from what we see back then, I think there's a reason for it. But I think it's important that we understand uh, how it was then in case it ever gets to where we need to kind of go back to doing some of this. And I still think we should to a certain extent. But um, in 2 Corinthians 9, in verse 10, because it, it said the widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 10, it says, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both ministered bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase of the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgiving unto God. While by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. So notice this ministration. This is referring to fulfilling people's physical needs. And Paul's commending them for their liberal distribution. The one area we're allowed to be liberal is where we all get conservative, and that's in giving. You know, and I'm glad we're conservative, but you know, in giving, you know, y'all need to get a little more liberal, all right? But anyway, that's another sermon for another day. And it says, And by their prayer for you, which long after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you, Thanks be unto God for this un, his unspeakable gift. So a lot of times when it's talking about that ministration, it's referring to helping take care of the physical 
and material needs of people within the church. And so in that day, not only was Israel, okay, the, the nation of Israel, and not, they were, and back then too, remember, even though they were under Roman control, you know, the Romans were allowing them to do things, but they were used to a, a system where kind of the church and state, you could say, were all one. And that's how it was supposed to be in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that's not how it is. But they were used to providing for people that were struggling. They were supposed to take care of the poor. They were supposed to look out for them. They weren't supposed to just let widows starve to death. They weren't supposed to let orphans you know, starve to death. They were supposed to take care of them. And so if, if it, the responsibility was on Israel to take care of these people, you know, you have to have some kind of system to make sure that's getting done. And understand, during these days, you know, governments, they didn't take very good care of people. And a lot of times it was left to the church to do that. And so today, you know, in America, most of our people are doing just fine when it comes to necessities. Okay? I know we all think we're poor in here today. How many walked to church today? Y'all drove cars, didn't you? And I bet most of you had air conditioning in those cars, didn't you? You know why? Because you're rich. Okay? And, I, and don't, I'm not going to preach to you about why you're rich. I think you all know that. But, you know, we would, wouldn't we be a sorry church if the widows in our church were starving? If they were living out in the streets? And so, you know, understand, we take this for granted. We don't really need to worry about this stuff a whole lot, do we? And we have a lot of widows that are in our church. And their material needs are being taken care of. But let me just say this, too. I believe we should continue helping with their spiritual needs. And, you know, one thing, and I don't, you know, one thing that I try to make sure I do is, you know, we've had several people, too, over the years who have attended this church and just got to where they just can't really come to church anymore. And I try to occasionally make sure I go and visit with them and just let them know. I just went and saw Pat Heminger the other day, and she's, uh, her dementia is really kind of ramping up with her. She's not able to drive anymore. She can't really get out like she used to. And so, you know, I, but I don't want us to just be like, oh, well, who cares? You know what? She was a part of our church. You know, she came when she could. And just because she's unable to do anything really for us doesn't mean we shouldn't do something for her because she's still one of God's sheep. He still cares about her. He still loves her. And, you know, I think we need to look out for her. And even though I know she's fed, she's clothed, she's got a house, I think we need to take care of the spiritual needs too. And there are, there are several other older folks that have come to this church over the years and some that haven't even been here in years, but I like to occasionally go out, make some visits and check up on them and see how they're doing. And just to remind them, we still consider you a part of this church. And, and so I'm glad we don't have to spend a whole lot of time, you know, giving them food and all those other things because, you know, most of them are set up pretty well there. But we, we should never neglect them when it comes to the spiritual things. And you know what? When the time comes and they die... They get all the, you know, benefits you all get too. They can have their funeral here. You know, we'll provide meals. We'll provide food. I'll do everything. We're not going to charge them anything. And well, what did they do for? They haven't done anything in years. But you know what? They're God's people. They did what they could when they could. And it's not about what people can do for us. It's about what we can do for other people. And we don't ever want to forget that. In First Timothy chapter five, look at this passage right here. Because again, this is foreign to us. Because we're so blessed in this country, we don't even really need to worry about this stuff a whole lot. But at the same time, too, if we had somebody in our church suffering, we would be a really bad church if we didn't do anything. And in 1 Timothy 5, 3, it says, Honor widows that are widows indeed, 
But if any widow have children or nephews, which is, at, which is grandchildren, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. You want to know whose responsibility it ultimately is to take care of the widows? It's their children and their grandchildren. Okay? Now, if the children and the grandchildren don't do it, are we just as Christians here just going to say, Psh, it's not our responsibility? No, their kids and their grandkids are pretty sorry. But at the same time, you know, we don't have the right to neglect them too. I think we need to step in. You know, and I, I think as a church, we should, we should always make sure we are just aware of needs. And you know what, folks? It might not even be physical needs. Sometimes some, people, some of these people might just need a visit from somebody. You know, they might need somebody to just spend some time with them. And that is very valuable to them. And I'm telling you right now, God sees you go visit some old lady, some old man that's just lonely. And you go, you spend a couple of hours of your time to just be a blessing to them. God's going to take notice of that. And he is not going to forget it. And you know, we miss a lot of opportunities. Everybody's wanting blessings from God. Well, we miss a lot of opportunities to earn them. That I think are around us. And you know what? You say, I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't know who to be a blessing to. Come talk to me. I, I can give you a few suggestions. I would love it if people, some of these people that I visit were regularly getting visits from people in our church. Maybe I should preach a whole sermon on that sometime. But I'll, I'll, let me just throw it in there for a bonus right now. You ought to do something about it. But he goes on, and I, I, don't, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but in 1 Timothy 5, he goes through, and then he gives kind of you know, uh, some qualifications for a widow that a church actually takes in to where not only are they, you know, they actually take responsibility for her, and they you know, make sure she's taken care of. Now, these widows, if they did that, you know, they would help. They would be a blessing in the church, to the church. They would, uh, they would work in the church. They weren't just going to come and get free housing and free everything. You know, they would do what they could. But at the same time, too, you know, there were requirements. Just because someone is a widow doesn't mean they're qualified to be taken care of completely by the church. Because it said, you know, it gave like an age requirement. Because some of these widows, they're just going to want to get remarried. And that, you know, I, I, I probably should just preach on that sometime. I've got a lot I want to cover tonight, and I wanted to get to this, but I've been preaching long lately, and so I'm going to skip that, all right? Y'all remind me to preach about widows and what to do with them and how to take care of them one of these days. I don't have time tonight, and it's not really about Acts 6, but understand, back then, taking care of widows was a bigger part of church than it really is in our country today because most people are taken care of pretty good. They've got nursing homes and, you know, they're, they're being fed. Uh, we're not leaving them, you know, kids aren't leaving their elderly parents down by the rivers like they do in some countries. Uh, that's not happening that, that we know of in this country. So, but, and I do think, too, that while the government's doing a lot of these things, you know, I think we'd be better off if the church was handling more of this stuff. And people are like, why don't the church just handle more of this stuff? Because the government's taxing all the people in our church into oblivion, you know, and if they weren't doing that, you know, then they would be able to give more to the church. We could do some of those things. But that's another subject, too. I, I got to get off this. All right, we're only in verse 1. Verse 2. Okay. Verse 2. I, 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 I was putting this together, and I'm like, I'm probably going to spend too much time on this. I should probably just skip it, but I didn't listen to myself. Verse 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. That type of work, it is. It's, it's menial work. It's very time-consuming but it was something that was important and needed to be done. These people needed to be fed and taking care of widows 
It would be a time-consuming, it's a menial task. Going and visiting elderly people, it's very time-consuming. Whenever I do that, it's real easy to go to some of these people's houses, and they do, they want to talk, and they want to talk, and they want to talk. And, but you know what? I think they deserve that time. I, and, you know, it, again, it doesn't do anything for us. It, but, you know, it's going to be a blessing. I remember one time, I shouldn't tell stories like this, I had uh, one call me, they were wanting to come talk to me because they were wanting to do a donation to the church. Okay, now, I would have visited them anyway. I visited anybody that asked for a visit, but they were talking about giving a donation. I didn't know how much money they had. You know, old people, sometimes they're loaded, right? But they wanted to start contributing more to the church. And I went over there, and they wrote the church a check for $25. Okay? All right, now, you know, you, now you, you aren't excited about that. Okay? But at the same time, it was a big deal to them. And you know what? I thank you for it, just like I would have if it had been a really big check. And, you know, that, you know it's, it's not about the money, folks. It's about being a blessing. We need to do that. So verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, which we may appoint over this business. And these are basically the church's first deacons that we see. A deacon is just a servant. This is somebody who does the menial work. Okay, a, a lot of people, you know, uh, they do, they get all lifted up when it comes to the titles. You know, call me Pastor McMurtry. Call me Deacon, whatever. Like it's some lofty title. Ladies and gentlemen, Pastor just means Shepherd. Go look in the Bible. Shepherd was not a lofty title. It was kind of you know, something that was kind of derogatory because all you do is take care of sheep. You're just a servant. You know, you're just a, you're a minister. That was a lowly thing. A deacon. That was not a lofty title. But people are so full of pride and arrogance today. They'll go all over the Bible. It's like, you know, call no man master. You know, don't call men rabbi. Which the problem was not the combination of letters that created those words. It was the, the status and everything that went with it. You're not supposed to be about lifting yourself up. So people would be all hardcore. Don't ever call anybody rabbi. You know, and I agree. If, you know, because, but again, it's not about the title. It's about what goes with it. And understand, we've taken the terms pastor, deacon, and we've turned it into the exact same thing. You know why? Because people are just as wicked as they were in the Pharisees' day. It's one more way. You know, you know kids, they often find new ways to get around the rules. Oh, man, we can't get called rabbi and master. Well, you know what? Pastor and deacon's okay. So let's just make a big equal deal out of those terms like we do rabbi, you know, and father and whatever. But this is nothing to get lifted up about. And it is. It should be, uh, it should be seen as just that it is. It's a, it's a humble thing. Bishop sounds pretty good. But bishop sounds pretty good too because you see some regal-looking Catholic dude with a big hat, you know, uh, when, you, when you hear that term. But again, a bishop's just an overseer. That's not that big of a deal. You know, another word we use for that today is manager. A lot of times that's all they are. Okay, nothing, nothing to get lifted up about. But these guys were the first deacons. And, it's, and so uh, they wanted to point them over that business. And they said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the ministry of the word is the most important thing. That's, I mean, that's the main thing when it comes to church. In verse 17, or 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, 
especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And I'm going to be talking about this in Sunday school this Sunday, about the, the importance of keeping your doctrine right. That is so important because whenever you start getting messed up doctrinally, it causes a shipwreck of your church. It causes a shipwreck of your ministry where you're not going to be reaching people like, like you're supposed to. And so making sure we are diligent to get our doctrine right is very important because bad doctrine, it doesn't come in overnight. It creeps in. It sneaks in. It's a little leaven that grows and it spreads. And a lot of churches today, you know, these are wonderful people. I think their heart's in the right place, but they've gotten a little lazy when it comes to doctrine. And you know what? A lot of these well-meaning people that I think love the Lord, they've gotten, because they've gotten lazy, don't even realize they've got some pretty bad junk being preached in their churches. And, you know, they need to spend a little more time instead of entertaining the flock and making sure. And a lot of pastors, too, man, they got to spend a lot of time just trying to entertain the flock, making sure church is fun, making sure they got enough activities and things going on in the church. You know, there's not enough money coming in where they can pay a deacon to do all that menial stuff. The pastor's got to try to do that. And he's expected to preach a message, too. And not only that, you know, it's got to be an entertaining one, too. Because some of the doctrinal stuff sometimes might get a little dry and boring. And so he's got to figure out, you know, new acrobats that he can do during his sermon and stuff to keep people's attention. And in the mean, and you know, and the crowd's getting entertained, but nobody's learning anything. And then, you know, you have churches like we have today that just doctrinally are a joke. And we don't want that to happen. They understood the importance of keeping that good doctrine. And so, you know what, we're going to count the elders, especially the ones that are laboring in the word. Okay. We're going to give them double honor. Deacons, you just get single honor, all right? <laughs> but uh, but you know, but it, you know, it is more important. And let me tell you something. A lot of churches today, and you know, I I am a hundred percent for having other ministries. I am a hundred and ten percent for having a good music ministry. I don't have problems with youth ministries and all these other ministries where people can get together and they can fellowship and they can have fun. I wouldn't have a problem if we had a softball team or something like that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But let me tell you something. What ends up happening in a lot of churches, people start coming to church for all those carnal things that are, you know, and, and they're not even just carnal. It's good fellowship. It's good fun. There's nothing wrong with having fun. But the problem is you start losing those things and then everybody's gone. And that happens. Church goes to hard times. Maybe they're struggling financially. They got to get rid of one of the staff members that do all the fun stuff. And then all, so they got to shut down these other ministries and then everybody's gone from the church. So you were in the church for the softball team. I, th I thought we were here because of the scripture. You know, you were here just for the music program. I thought we were mainly here for the scriptures. And you know, that's, it's always bad when that happens. And I see that happen a lot where you lose it. The Christian school goes in some churches bunch of people are gone too so you're only there for the christian school that's that's not the way it's supposed to be we got our priorities wrong and that happens a lot and we need to understand what's more important so verse uh five of Acts six says and the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose stephen a man full of faith and of the holy ghost and philip and prochorus and nicanor and timon and parmenius and nicholas the proselyte of antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And a couple of things I want you to notice here. The multitude was involved in the choice. Okay? I think it's very important when it comes to ordination that it's not just about the pastor and what he thinks. 
I think it's very important that the congregation be behind it. Okay? Now, again, this is not giving everyone in the church like equal say, equal value. You know, a lot of people, they hear that, and then all of a sudden, if they disagree with the decision, you know, they create a big, ugly stink in the church. How dare the pastor not listen to me? Well, here's the thing. You know, if you have 99 people for something and one person that's against something, you know, why should we put your opinion before the 99? You know, that's a pretty selfish attitude, you know, if, that, if that's your attitude. But second of all, too, a lot of times the pastor might be hearing that person. You know, I, I hear your concern, but it might not be legit. You know, your concern might not really be warranted. It's not something that, um, you know, is a deal breaker or whatever. But again, you know, if, for, so, you know, say for example, we're going to ordain somebody and Brother Josh comes to me and he's like, you know, Pastor, I don't think I would adopt that person or, or uh, not adopt, I'll ordain that person. Uh, you know, I'm creeped out by him. There's this, there's this something wrong. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something wrong. Now, I don't have a right, I, I should not tell that person, you know what, sorry, I, you're not qualified. Brother Josh has a weird feeling about you. Okay, but listen, it, you know what? If you have a bad feeling about something, as long as you can come to me about it, tell me about it, not tell the whole church about it, not get mad at me if I don't go off your gut instinct, you know, it's okay for you to do that. Because here's the thing too with that. What if 20 people are like, Pastor, something's wrong. You know, pretty soon I might start saying, you know what, maybe, maybe there is something wrong. Maybe you need to spend a little more time praying about this. Okay. Now, if the 20 people that came to me are, the, are your 20 buddies that were over at your house last night, I'm not really going to think it was of the Lord, you know, that you all just magically did that at the same time. Again, I'm telling you, I, I want to hear what people have to say, but I, what I don't want are, you know, factions forming and, you know, alliances being made and, um, you know, what do they call that? Coups being, uh, you know, going. I, we, we, we don't want that kind of thing. But here in this story, the multitude, they did. They chose these seven men and they brought them before the apostles. Now, I do believe that the apostles had veto power. And I think a pastor should have veto power when it comes to these things. You know, I don't think we should just go off of who I personally think and when I'm against, and I'm against the whole church. But if the, if the church too is like, I think it should be this guy and I'm, pretty sure it shouldn't be that guy you know that's just we might not be able to do anything because at the end of the day when it comes down to laying hands on somebody you know it is on me and it, it's going to make i'm going to be the one that looks bad if i ordain a guy who should not be ordained and look what it says in first timothy 5 okay we already looked at uh, 17 and 18 about the um, elders that rule well. Verse 18 says against, or 19, against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, talking about elders that sin, rebuke before all that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another. Do nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. So if I'm ordaining guys that are just going out and being wicked, if I'm ordaining guys that are going out and teaching heresy and going liberal and, and doing all just kinds of crazy, terrible behavior, guess who's going to end up looking bad? Me. It's going to kill my reputation. Okay? Nobody's going to associate your name with that kind of thing. 
but they will with me. So I do believe that the actual, it should be an ordained person laying hands on them. And, but an ordained person, they ought to have the wisdom to, you know, hear what people have to say. But at, at the end of the day too, ultimately the decision will end up being theirs because, you know, it's them, it's them, their name that's going to get hurt if they ordain somebody that shouldn't be ordained. So, uh, understand that, uh, how this works. This is people working together and it's very important that we always remember that. So I, I do, I think a pastor is always wise to hear the concerns of the congregation. A pastor should be ready to listen. He should be able to hear what has to be said, but the final decision is his especially since he's the only one. I'll be the partaker in the sins if I ordain the wrong guy. And you know what? Here's the other thing, comfort for you all too. If I ordain the wrong guy that you were not for me ordained, because some people is just against everybody. Okay? Some of y'all, I knew he was bad. You think, you think everybody was bad. Okay? You, know, you would have been one of the people that didn't trust the Apostle Paul after he got saved. You know, but again, you know, when, you, when you reprobate everybody, you're going to get one right every now and then. So you're not impressing anybody, okay? but anyway, um, you know these are, you know these are, these are very serious things, and so I, we've got to we've got to watch how we are on this. But verse seven, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Okay? Now what we're seeing here is a continued expansion of the success that the church is having. They're getting organized. They've got a group of uh, deacons now because things are growing so much. There's a lot of work to be done. But now we have a great company of the priests because remember, they've been hanging out around the temple. And, uh, and now a bunch of the priests, a bunch of the dignitaries, a bunch of the higher ups among, of, of the Jews are joining them. Now, what do you think that probably did you know, to those who are still you know, doing the things of the temple, the sacrifices? They're taking all of our workers. This is why it's getting really intense. And notice how it says, too, it doesn't say that they got saved. It says they were obedient to the faith. Okay? Now, what do you think that means? Okay? Because did these priests get saved when they heard the preaching? Or were these priests who were already saved because they were already a faith? Because remember when Jesus was born? You had, was it Simon? It was a priest. Do you think he was saved? Yeah, he was already saved. He was already somebody of faith. There was many priests that, during this time that were probably good people who loved the Lord, that were people of faith. You know, but maybe a lot of them had not gotten a real good introduction to Jesus Christ yet. You know, who, who knows exactly. But I've said this before and I'll say it again. I believe anyone who was legitimately saved before the cross eventually became a follower of Jesus. Did they all follow in the first day? Obviously, they probably didn't. But eventually, once, they're, once these things are preached to them, the scriptures are going to be open to them. They're going to see it. They're going to come around. And if you were a priest and you were offering up sacrifices, you were doing all those things, and then Jesus Christ comes and you follow him, you know what you're doing? You're being obedient to the faith. You're not having faith all of a sudden. You know, like we did when we get saved. No, you're being obedient to the faith. You're continuing in what you had been taught because they were taught in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the passage in a little bit. 
to follow that prophet like unto Moses and to do what he says to do. That's exactly what they were told to do. So these people who fought, these priests who followed Jesus, it doesn't say they got saved, even though they might have gotten saved right then. They might not have been saved before and got saved then. But either way, it's called being obedient to the faith because all the Jews who followed Christ were obedient to the faith and all the ones who did not follow Christ were disobedient to the faith. And you know what? They were cut off from the people. They were branches that were broken off. So I think it's interesting the way they worded that there. I think it's, I think it's interesting the way they worded it. I think it's interesting too how you know, people were just added to the church. They were added to this group. Some, you know, some of the people might have been already been saved. They might have been saved during the preaching of Jesus. But it was during this time they joined up with them. I don't know how that all works. Everybody always wants to figure out the nanosecond of when everybody got saved. You know, that's not always real clear in the Bible, when that actual nanosecond was that they got saved. But the important thing is, if people were believers, if they were of faith before the cross, they would follow Jesus. And, and, uh, and so when people came to that point, the Bible doesn't tell us every time. But verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And we're going to look at Stephen a lot next week. Uh, and he was a truly exceptional man. The Bible says absolutely nothing negative about him. He was someone who stood out in a multitude. He was not, and so not only was he, uh, you know, seven, one of the seven in a multitude, but he was one of the seven. He's the most notable of the seven. That's the kind of guy he was. And verse nine says, and there arose a certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and them of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Okay, now remember, here in the early church at this point, they're still hanging around the temple, aren't they? And so they're around the other Jews. They're around the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And here's a specific group that they're around. And you know, one thing we see, we see these groups occasionally facing off with each other. And here we see Stephen all by himself facing off with the whole group, you know, around the temple. Now, a modern day comparison of this, you know, because today we don't have an earthly headquarters today, do we? We don't, there's no single place that all Christians all congregate around and claim, right? We're looking for a heavenly country, right? So we don't have anything like that. But, you know, we do have a mission field. And often we have people who come into our mission field and get in our territory who claim to be of God, who claim to be of Jesus Christ. And so while it probably doesn't happen with us as much as it did with them because they all kind of had that central location, we occasionally, when we're out on our mission field out souling, we run into some groups like the Mormons, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. And what typically happens if we start talking with them? It usually isn't us singing Kumbaya, is it? <laughs> it usually results in a good argument going. Right? We stand up to these people. We rebuke these people. You know, that's the way it should be. That's what they did back then. You know, I think all these Christians should all get along. No, no, we shouldn't. Stephen wasn't getting along with the Libertines. And you know what? We're going to do the same thing. You know what? I'd love to see a package of Jehovah's Witnesses out there. I'll go preach to all of them. I don't care. So you're wasting your time with them. Well, I'm wasting their time too. And so I might be wasting just my time, but if I'm wasting 10 of their times, you know, then that's a net gain for us. All right. That's less damage they're, they're able to do. So keep that in mind if you're going to waste your time with them. You know, only if there's more of them than there are of you. Otherwise, they're, they're holding up the work. So, uh, a little rule of thumb there for you. But I do think there's some similarities what's going on. 
But here in verse 10, now this doesn't always happen when Baptists start fighting with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, but here it says, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. A lot of times the guys who want to argue the most are the knuckleheads that don't know anything and just make your side look bad. You know, and some of you just need to have the wisdom to just walk away from some of these people. You might not be ready to face off with them. But Stephen, he was. He was a man full of faith. He was full of the Holy Ghost. I guarantee he knew his Bible. And so they weren't able to resist him. So what did they do? Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And what do people typically do when they can't refute what you're saying? They lie about you. And this was an absolute lie. And you know what? Here's the other thing, too. When people don't like what you're saying, but they can't refute you, often what they do is they, because these guys, they're afraid of looking bad. So it says they suborn men. They get other men to accuse them. Why? Because, again, false accusations is a dangerous thing. So we want to get these guys in trouble, but I can't accuse them. I'll get in trouble. So let's go get some idiots. Okay, we call these the water boys here. The guys that want to be players. They want to be a part of the game, but, you know, they're just not ready yet. They're too lame or whatever. But, you know, they, they will go. You know, they're always ready to carry the water, just hoping to get that opportunity. And then a lot of times what they do is they'll give that water boy a chance. All right, fine. You know what? I don't want to go mess with that guy. He'll probably take me out. So here, if so by some chance, you know, David beats Goliath, you know, if you can go take that guy out, then we'll promote you to preacher or something like that. And so you've got these guys that are always ready, you know, thinking they're sticking up for another preacher to just go attack somebody. Have you ever had water boys come after you, Pastor Boy? I've seen water boys come after you before. And I've, had, I've had them come after me before too. And it's like, you know what, why don't you go get your boss and tell him to come talk to me? But the boss is afraid to talk to you because the boss can't refute what you're saying. You know, they, they, there is, you know, I'm sorry, you know, as much as people have tried to find the heresy... You know, it's not, it's not coming from my pulpit. I know they've been looking for heresy from you. And they're, they're just not finding it. But what do they do? They want to, if, they, if there's any way they can, you know, cause you trouble, you know, they, they, can't, they can't throw everything in the kitchen sink at you hoping something will stick because they'll hurt their credibility by all the false things that they throw at you when you start refuting those things one by one. But nobody cares about the water boys. They don't have a reputation to lose. So that's why they use these people, okay? Any, and anybody that has to use a water boy to do their dirty work for them is just lame, okay? And that's why I don't, I, I, don't, I don't use water boys. I don't need water boys. If somebody needs taken to the woodshed, I'll take them to the woodshed myself. And I think it's wrong when people do this. But this is what they did. They couldn't resist his wisdom. So they, they, they get these men to claim that they spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And in verse 12, and they stirred up the people. They started sharing posts in the Facebook groups. Look at what he said right here. Can you believe he did this? Folks, people have never changed, have they? They've never changed. And so they, so they, and they came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And so they do. They go, they go to their Facebook groups, listen to what he said at minute marker or you know, whatever. And then everybody comes and just all of a sudden, all the comments start coming at the same time. I've been there before too. Where it's just like all of a sudden there'll be a video there. I wasn't getting a lot of action. And all of a sudden just comments, comments, comments. All within a short period of time. It's like, I think somebody shared that in a Facebook group somewhere. And they're all saying the same dumb thing. I think they've all been talking amongst each other. You know, it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a detective to figure out, I wonder where this came from. I wonder where this started. 
Hey, that talking point that you just said, that was really stupid and unbiblical. I heard that in a sermon somewhere. I know where, I think I know, I, I think y'all are being water boys. That's what I think you're doing right now. Isn't it interesting the way people never change? That's amazing about the Bible. They didn't have Facebook back then. They didn't have social media, but we see the exact same kind of things. You know why? Because we just invent new tools to do the same junk with. That's just, that's just how we are as people. And so when people can't shut you up, they try to rile up the mob against you. And we see that too. We've got people uh, online. There's atheist groups and things out there that watch everything we say, just hoping that we'll say something that will stir up the ignoramuses that follow their accounts. And so they do. They'll, they'll get that clip. They'll even edit things so it sounds like what you're saying is a whole lot worse. Just hoping it'll go viral. Just hoping it will make the news. Because they do. They hate us. They can't get rid of us. But if they can get enough people mad at us, they might get us canceled. They might get our YouTube channel shut down. Something like that might happen. And it's just exactly what they were doing back then. Let's just get the mob mad at them. Yeah, but they're not doing anything that's actually bad. Well, will make something up. Yeah, but we can get in trouble if we're lying about people. Go find some certain lewd fellows of the base resort that nobody cares about. They'll do anything for 20 bucks. You know? Go find a water boy. They'll do anything to just get a chance to, you know, get their YouTube video shared by the right person. You know? They'll, they'll, they'll do anything for a subscriber. You know, just, you know, let, let's get some of those people and let's use them. But no, that, this is... You know, let's, let's stir up the mob, that mob mentality. And a lot of times, too, you know, mobs, when they get going, this is why a lot of people like using mobs, is because when a mob, and, and, you know, we've seen it lately, too, with the politicians trying to rile up mobs. And why do they do this? Because, again, you know, we've all been there before where we probably wanted to take somebody out, burn down a building or something like that. We felt that way before, but we don't want to do it because we'll get in trouble. So if you can get enough people angry, it just might happen, but then it's hard to know who to pin it on. And it's a way we can distance ourselves from it. And this, you know, that's, that's wicked, that's cowardly, but it's also human nature. It really is. It's, it's human nature. You know, and I'm not even going to say things that I would like to happen to some of the houses with pride flags in front of them. Because somebody might go and, you know, do my great idea. I've thought of fantastic ideas. But you know what? I'm not going to do those things. Because it's illegal. Probably isn't technically right, but I'd sure, if somebody did it, it would bring a smile to my face, probably. But you know what? I'm not even going to say what it is because some of you might do it. And you know what? That would, that would be lame for me to do that. And, and some of you would know. And, and I would hate it if somebody in our church did it because if somebody in our church did it, we got busted. You know, it would cause all kinds of problems for us. But you all know what I'm talking about. You, some of you did that when you were in school. You had somebody in the school you didn't like, you thought they needed to get beat up, but maybe you thought they could beat you up, or you'd get in trouble for beating them up. So what do you do? Did you hear what he said about your mom? You know, did you hear, you, know you, you, you go and you make up stories, hoping they'll go beat them up. Hoping they'll do the dirty work for you. And that's, that's what these people were doing. And it was, it, 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 what it came down to, it was just hatred. It was hatred. It says in verse 13, And they set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. And being a false witness, it was dangerous. But you know what? They would use the expendables, the scum of society. And notice, too, they're making a very serious charge against them 
But when they're forced to get specific, the amount of twisting they do is incredible. It says in verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered unto us. Now, did you know on one hand that was true? On one hand, that was true. Acts 3.22 says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. And Jesus did change the customs, didn't he? He got rid of the priesthood. He got rid of the sacrifices. He changed a lot of things. But understand... While it was true, he was changing customs. You know what wasn't true? That it was blasphemy. And what do people do all the time? They'll say, these people are wicked. They're unsaved. Why? Because they're preaching heresy. Okay, what's a heresy? And then you tell, but it's actually biblical. No, you're actually just wrong about the Bible. But what is it they always say? Heresy. Why? Well, try to make things seem worse than they are. So, uh, verse 15, And all sat in council looking steadfastly on him, and saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And I'm going to try to quickly go with this. I don't want to read into this more than I should, but let me give you a few thoughts here on what I think was going on and set up a couple things for next week when it comes to Stephen. First off, what does it mean when it says he has the face of an angel? Now, I personally believe it means his face was literally shining. I believe it was literally shining here. Revelation 10.1, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon him. And his face was, it were, the sun. So here we see an angel, and his face is like the sun. What does that mean? It's shining. Matthew 28, 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. Okay? We've got a bright face right here. I believe, okay, and if I, I might be getting an opinion a little bit here. But let me just tell you why these things are my opinion real quick. I believe Stephen was so full of the Holy Ghost right here that I think he started showing his true colors as the Son of God. That's what I believe is happening here. It says in 1 John 3, 2, we can go through that. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We know that, and I'm not going to go to all the Scriptures, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, His face shone like the firmament. In Daniel 12, at the resurrection, they that do right shall shine as the brightness of a firmament. I believe when we get our glorified bodies, it's going to shine. I believe we're going to have a face that shines like the face of an angel. And I just personally think Stephen was just so full of the Holy Ghost at this point that he did. He just started showing what he really was on the inside. And folks, that's what we really are on the inside, but we, always, we often mask it with our flesh by being carnal. And I just think he was so full of the Holy Ghost that he was showing what he really was on the inside. That's my opinion right there. But I also believe what was taking place right here was also of just great significance. And I believe it was a reminder to Israel of another time in their history. In 2 Corinthians 3, 7, it says, But if the ministration of death, referring to the Old Covenant, written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? So when Moses comes to present the ministration of death to the people of Israel, his face shone and they couldn't even look at him. And folks, it was then, years later in Deuteronomy 18, 
God is referring back to that time when Moses came down from the mount and it said, and it said in verse 15, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall ye hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. You can't, he's telling them, you can't handle me. You're too sinful. And so you know what he said? I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And you know what? God brought the old covenant to Israel by Moses, and they couldn't even look, they couldn't even look at him. They made him put a veil over his face. And so God ended up bringing in a better covenant through Jesus Christ. But you know what we have here? We've got another guy with a glowing face bringing this new covenant to the people of Israel. And you know what they did with that? They rejected it too. They, they rejected it. In fact, we're going to see next week, they rejected it so much that they did. They gnashed on him with their teeth and they took him out and they stoned him. That's how violently they rejected the, the Word of God. That's how violently they rejected the gospel. And you think there was no consequences for that? Well, you better believe there were consequences for that. And so I personally believe there's, God was doing something similar to kind of what he did with Moses. And either way, it didn't work either time. You know why? Because Israel just rejected the holiness of God. They couldn't handle it. And so what we're going to be looking at next week is Stephen preaching a sermon to Israel where basically he's just going to go through the history their history from Abraham to where they were on that day, showing them their sin, showing them their Savior, showing them that they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. And instead of repentance, they killed Stephen, which I believe sealed their fate that day. Israel was not saved in 70 AD. They were wiped out. They were punished for the sins of killing the prophets and killing Jesus. And I do. I believe what we're going to see next week, it concludes... The ministry to restore Israel is what, I per, is what I personally believe and ultimately causes them to go in. We're going to see them go into more of a mindset like we have today. The church in Jerusalem remained in Jerusalem, but all of a sudden now things are being revealed. They're starting to understand a little more of Christ's plan and we see them having more of a mentality like we do today. Like we're not trying, you know, we're trying to win people. But we're not trying to take over the country, are we? Okay, we're not trying to uh, set up, you know, get a kingdom for America, right? But we have more of an occupy till he comes mentality. And this is, what, and I believe, uh, while this change didn't happen overnight, it set a course of events that switched to a focus on the Gentiles, which was always God's plan. And the church in Jerusalem was one more with an occupy till I come. Mindset, And I believe that's when they started slowly getting away from the things of the temple. I'm like, you know what? Israel's not getting restored. Jesus was right in his prophecy. This temple's going to be destroyed. He's done, he's done. We don't even need this anymore. The sacrifice of Christ was enough. We don't need Levitical priests anymore. Jesus Christ is our high priest. They started figuring all these things out. But folks, you've got to understand when you're reading the book of Acts, again, they didn't understand these things overnight. They didn't, even though it changed... When the veil of the temple was rent, 
God slowly revealed it to him over time. And we're seeing that take place as Israel is just sealing their fate with their rejection of the gospel. And so we'll talk more about that next week. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was a help to everyone. Lord, we do thank you for uh, the, the wonderful uh, gift of salvation, how easy it is for us, for your provision. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to uh, do what we can to spread that message as well as possible. I pray you'll help us to be diligent in our work as a church, Lord, and uh, being diligent with the Word and also diligent in taking care of other people and uh, serving others like you want us to do. In your name we pray. Amen.